Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. And if you're watching online, glad you're doing that, as well as down in uh, F3. Hey, before we uh, get into the book of Acts, our study that we've begun, uh, we have a guest with us this morning that I uh, would like to invite up here. Curtis Thompson is from uh, inner city Chicago. Uh, Curtis and Michelle, uh, minister at Reborn Community Church, which is uh, actually a suburb of uh, Chicago. It's um, called Garfield Park, one of the most uh, dangerous places uh, to live here in the United States. And uh, uh, Michelle is back in Chicago. Uh, Curtis is with us here for a week. But uh, it, you grew up, come on over here closer to me, man. Um, the, the, the Garfield Park area, I think you had told us like one out of eight people are gonna suffer a violent uh, crime uh, against them. We've got prostitution just about on every street corner, uh, gangs, uh, bullets flying, people dying, uh, drugs selling, um, and then there's Reborn Church. So tell us a little bit about what God is doing in Reborn Church. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, you have Chicago, and you have all the statistics on Chicago and violence and, and drugs and gangs and things, and then you have about six miles west of downtown Chicago, a community called Garfield Park. Even more specific, where our church is, is West Garfield Park. And uh, it is a very um, place where sin is blatant in front of you. Um, I think a statistic, well, I know a statistic that came out this year, the 100 most dangerous communities in Chicago, um, Garfield Park is number one mm -hmm. on the list. So we, we have uh, had that record for a while. We continue to have that record. There's, there's so many obstacles. You see everything in front of you as an obstacle, right? A lot of times in our lives. And, uh, and, there's, and there's so many challenges, but we have seen God be bigger than those obstacles and challenges to do amazing things to grab a hold of people's lives that were so far gone. So, like a lot of people, just there, there's no hope for that person, and God redeems them. And that's just a really um, neat thing about what I get to be a part of is just seeing one life changed at a time, uh, see people be invested in, time spent with them, them being walked with, and then a transformation. In their lives happening. So give us an example of where God is showing up in, the, in that ministry. Just a, a, a quick example. Yeah. Um, so we, we have, uh, we, years ago, I, I, I attempted to, to um, get into the school and, and just like, how can we partner with the school? And there was a lot of closed doors. I remember even one time passing out flyers for our children's program um, in front of the school and, and they asked me to leave. So we're going from that place to, to years later, a young man named Namaje, who's not a young man anymore. He's actually in college. He's bigger than I am. And actually, I had to fix a, re, rebuild my, front por my back porch this last year because he was living with us for a couple years, and it didn't survive. Uh, he's a big guy. Um, but he, when he was in about sixth grade, he, he, he was a, a really bad kid. This would be his testimony he would share. I was really bad. And... Uh, the teachers and the principal started to know something different going on in his life. He started to interact differently. They actually started calling him the preacher because he would want to pray in the classroom. And uh, the principal asked him, so what's changed? Why, why are you acting so different? And uh, he said, I started going to Reborn. I got saved. And uh, I believe in Jesus. And uh, 
really started to crack that door open into the school to where right now we have uh, two employees in the school, our children's ministry director, and then we have an a, a intern for the next year who actually have an office in the school. Um, the school utilizes our, our training that we've been trained in in, in, in therapy um, from kids that have dealt with trauma to actually send kids that they're having struggles with into our, our classroom to walk the halls with us to walk through their trauma to share the gospel in the Chicago Public School, which is un, unheard of so as far as I know. So you're, you're kicked out of there years ago uh, while people selling they drugs. Still, they right still there. won't let me in. Well, no, okay, so, so, well, they're educated people, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so God is doing a work there. You started now recently, you mentioned um, kind of a, a, a life skills, some classes. Yeah, for years we've, we've really, we've had a lot of people come up to us and say, I am stuck. I'm in, I'm in the gang life, there's no way out. I can't figure out how to get out of, of, this, of this gang life. Um, I have a record, um, I've been to prison, no one's gonna hire me, there's just like no options. So we've been dreaming about this for a long time and we're, we're able to start a, a uh, job skill, handyman training program where we're actually walking through different skill sets. We, we've, we're doing plumbing with them. They're, they're in the building soldering pipe and, and, and figuring out how to install a toilet. And when you think about some of that stuff, seems very simple. Um, but when you grow up without a father and a lot of them in an apartment where you don't actually have to fix anything in the place, it's, it's, it's brand new. So it's really neat to be able to walk through um, these, these skill sets. It's a 10-week uh, three 10-week courses. We do it on Saturdays. We have about 10 guys in it right now. Two of the guys were youth that, that we worked with in, in children's ministry and youth ministry, walked away for a good number of years, and now get to see them coming back and the discipleship continuing that we started a while back. So it's really exciting for me because those guys mean a lot to me. And when, when you see them making their choices yeah. and living in the world, um, it's, it's sad. And it's sad. But then to see them coming back because they know that Reborn loves them, we're still here, and they're, they're ready to come right back in the door. It was really a neat thing. The only hope for our cities or our communities or even rural America, the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, yeah, praise God for that. So, um, so Curtis and Michelle, they raised their own support. FPC has been supporting them for a lot of years. Really appreciate the work they're doing. Um, they're in that inner city, just sacrificing a lot, um, and their family to, to live there, to love these people and make a difference. And um, if you would like to consider uh, involvement in their life, uh, they could use some more support financially and uh, prayer support. You can go to our website and uh, find out about uh, where that can be done and uh, support uh, Reborn Church uh, and Curtis and, and Michelle. Um, by the way, if you check our latest podcast, our church, our global church podcast, um, they've been interviewed. You've got, you can get a whole lot more detail about Reborn Church and their ministry going to our uh, uh, number 50 uh, podcast uh, of our global church podcast. So thanks, Curtis. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to a partner with the, with the Thompsons, um, we don't, um, that the inner city Chicago is just, 
it's just not in my experience. Uh, it's not in any of our experiences. But Curtis and Michelle are dedicating their life to bring the hope of the gospel in a hopeless, hopeless situation. Politicians can't fix it. Educators can't fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. And they are Jesus. Uh, they're showing up through Reborn Church. I pray that you'd protect them, encourage them. As um, It's a daunting task, but um, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I just thank you for the work that you're doing through the Thompsons. May you um, broaden it, expand it, and may lives be changed, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Curtis. Yeah. So why do we do that? I mean, why, why do we partner with people like the Thompsons? Um, next week, uh, our missions pastors, Scott McManigal and Jim Pooler, are going to Nepal to meet with some pastors, local pastors there, equip those pastors. They'll get home, uh, then they head to Guadalajara, Mexico, and and minister down there. Why do we do that? Why is 20% of our, our budget here at Fellowship Bible Church on a Sunday morning go, why does it go to global missions? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that the final words that Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven had something to do about being a witness to the world. So take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 1 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, the last words Jesus spoke, it's recorded in volume 2 of the two-volume work that Luke wrote. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, or the remotest part of the earth. Final words of Jesus. Now, those final words of Jesus were prompted by the question that Peter uh, asked him, or the disciples asked him, Lord, is it at this time... You're restoring the kingdom to Israel. Like, where did that come from? Well, it's not a misdirected question. It's a really, really good question based on a couple of things. Number one, that's what Jesus was talking about. If you look at verse 3, Jesus spent his final 40 days, it says, last part of verse 3, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The things concerning the kingdom of God. And Jesus said those things about the kingdom because the Old Testament prophets prophesied that there was a coming day when the kingdom of God was going to be restored to Israel and the anointed one, the Messiah, was going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and bring righteousness and justice and peace to all the world. And the final 40 days of Jesus' life here on earth was spent teaching about that coming kingdom. But second of all, in verse 5, Jesus makes reference to the fact that John baptized, he said, with water. But you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And man, read 
sirens, uh, flags go off in the disciples' minds, you know, ding, 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 Holy Spirit coming? Well, again, that's tied back to the Old Testament prophets, as we saw a couple weeks ago. The coming or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was um, coordinated with this coming restoration of the kingdom to Israel in the final days. So Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom, and then he mentions the outpouring of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Logical question would be, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're going to do all this? Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? A logical question. Now, it's not that Jesus corrected the apostles or the disciples. He does say in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has said. You see, they asked the question in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs. Um, the question of God one day restoring the kingdom to Israel was never in doubt. Again, Jesus taught about that for 40 days. The issue was always, though, here, what Jesus is focusing on is the timing. He says, look, it's not for you to know those times or the seasons, the epochs that the Father has set. But then he goes on and gives the marching orders. You don't have to know the time, but, verse 8, and that was the verse that the fourth graders led us in this morning, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Spirit of God has come upon you, and you're going to be witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in your Jerusalem, in the expanded region of Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part, the ends of the earth. Now, notice, that's not a command. It's a promise. I promise you, Jesus said, the power of the Spirit is going to come upon you, and when that spiritual power comes upon you, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Now, the receiving of the power coordinated with what he said in verse 5 of the baptism, or it doesn't say as a noun, baptism, it is this being baptized by the Spirit. They're one and the same. You will receive power when you are baptized by the Spirit. So what does that mean, to be baptized by the Spirit? Well, the Greek word for to be baptized, the Greek word for baptized is the word baptized. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it doesn't take rocket science to figure that out, but it, the, the word is literally baptizo, but they just brought the letters over from the Greek language to the English language. So every time you say the word baptism, you're speaking Greek, to be baptized. We're having a baptism service here in a couple weeks. Um, now, the word to be baptized, that concept, uh, literally had to do with uh, immersing something into something else, to be um, literally dipped into. So, for instance, the word was used to um, describe what would happen when you take a, a piece of cloth and you dip it into dye. You take a white cloth, you dip it into a red dye solution. That act of immersing that cloth into the dye was baptizo. Um, it was used of a, of a ship that was sinking uh, in the middle of the ocean. The, the ship was immersed into. It was baptized. Now, um, the idea was also brought over more figuratively to refer to being identified with something. 
to being identified. So the white cloth is immersed into the red dye solution, and it is identified with it. You pull it out, and it's red. It's not blue or purple or yellow. It's red because it's being identified with what it's being immersed into. Um, so, for instance, in the New Testament, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, he wrote, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. They were all, here it is, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What? Baptized into Moses? <clears throat> What's that mean? It means they were all identified with Moses. When Moses put his little toe into that Red Sea, and the sea parted, and the Israelites walked across. They followed Moses. They were identifying with Moses. They were all baptized into Moses. Um, baptism means I'm identifying with this person, with this belief. I'm immersing myself in my identity with this. So, when Jesus said, you're going to receive power... When you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, what, what is he saying you're going to be baptized into? What are you going to be immersed into? What are you going to be identified in or with? Well, again, the Apostle Paul gives us some understanding of that. Chapter 12, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized, immersed into, placed into, identified with one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying here, we are being identified, immersed into the body of Christ. You see, the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, in that moment of faith, when we transfer our trust off of ourselves, off of good works, off of any attempt we make to gain God's favor... The moment we trust Christ as the giver of eternal life for us, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. And Paul says we are baptized into the body. And that's what Jesus was referring to. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see this in Acts chapter 2 in a couple of weeks, when that initial work began in Acts chapter 2, and the church of Jesus Christ began. And from that moment on, every believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment of faith, is placed into, is immersed into the body of Christ. That becomes our identity. We become members of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, what happened next in this story is, uh, is of monumental importance. Look at verse 9. After he had said these things, verse 9, it says he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of sight. What happens next? Well, he ascends into heaven, into the clouds. He's taken up, and he disappears before their eyes. He ends up in heaven. Now, they shouldn't have been surprised at that, because Jesus had told them many times in the previous weeks that he was going to go up to heaven. Example, John 14, just hours before he's crucified. He said, I came forth from the Father, 
And I've come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again. I'm going back to the Father. I mean, can you get any more clear? I, I, Jesus left his throne in glory, and he set aside his divine privileges as deity. It, Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant, becoming in the likeness of the very essence of humanity. He didn't divulge himself or he didn't uh, divest himself of deity, but while being perfectly God, he became perfectly human. He set aside his privileges. He left the throne. He came down to earth, and he's saying, well, I'm now going to leave the earth, and I'm going to go back to the Father. He had told them this. He had warned them that this was going to happen. Now, why is this so important, the ascension of Jesus back into heaven? Well, he also told and taught his disciples that. He taught them the importance of his ascension. And he was telling them, again, those final hours before he was crucified, that as he ascends, the Holy Spirit is going to descend, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that is very, very important. He said it this way in John chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, he won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage that I go away, he says. Now, there are four advantages, well, that Jesus unpacks here in John's gospel. Let me just go through them real quickly. The advantage of Jesus ascending to heaven brought about the descent of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus said, man, that has great advantages. So let me share with you four advantages of why that is true. First of all, Jesus tells his disciples, when the Spirit comes upon you, you're going to accomplish greater works for God. And second of all, you're going to enjoy greater intimacy with God. And thirdly, you're going to gain and expand a greater understanding of God. And finally, you're going to have a more powerful witness for God. Here's four advantages. Jesus said, it's better that I go up to heaven so that the Spirit can come down. Now let's unpack these real quickly. It's better that I go to heaven. Why? Because greater works you will do. John chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. The implication is, that ain't going to happen if I don't go to the Father. So it's advantageous. The ascension of Christ was crucial, because it brought about the descent of the Holy Spirit, Greater works you will do. Now, he doesn't elaborate what those greater works are. What we're going to find out about it through the study of the book of Acts. Page after page after page. Remember, when, when Jesus was here on earth, he was in one space at one time, right? Once, when he was walking the streets of Jerusalem, he wasn't in Capernaum in Galilee. He was in Jerusalem, one space, one time. When he was ministering to the woman at the well in Samaria, he wasn't teaching his disciples in Caesarea. He was in one place at one time, and now he's saying, you're going to do greater works. Greater works are going to be done. How? How's that going to happen? Because my Holy Spirit, he said, is going to descend and is going to fill you. You are going to be identified with 
the body of Christ, all that Jesus not only began to do and teach while he walked here on earth in his human form, but all that he continued to do and teach as it's demonstrated and lived out to the life of his people, you and me, and down through the centuries of time, the spiritual body of Christ. And as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, in that 30-some years that the book of Acts covers, um, hundreds of thousands of people's lives are changed. It reaches to the ends of the Roman Empire. Greater works you will do because I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you'll turn the world upside down. And whether you're a, a fisherman or a, a former tax collector, a, a, a religious priest or lawyer or a educated or uneducated, rich or poor man or woman, child, it, when, when God the Holy Spirit is poured out in your life, he says, you're going to do greater works. Now, second of all, he says you're also going to have greater intimacy with God. John 14, verse 16 says this, I will ask the Father, he's going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. And he says in verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Now that's intimacy. Intimacy, spiritual intimacy. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to descend, and he's going to take up residence in our life. We become, the, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides within us. And that brings us to deep, the potential for deep intimacy with God. I in you, you in me. Um, you know, when, when Jesus was on earth, he ate with the disciples. They fellowshiped together. They walked the dusty roads together. They had conversations probably late into the night together. And then he ascended into heaven. It was life-changing for them. John said it this way in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We saw it, we felt it, we handled it, we hugged him, we conversed with him. But Jesus is saying here, not only greater works are you going to do, because I go to the Father, you're going to experience the potential for greater intimacy, because I'm not just going to be walking with you, I'm going to be in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Folks, that's profound. And he said, that's not going to happen if the ascension doesn't occur. If I don't go up to the Father, I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit. And when I do, greater works you will do, greater intimacy with God. And thirdly, he said, you're going to have a greater understanding of God. John 16, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you, the spirit of truth. 
Every believer in Jesus Christ, that's you if you know Jesus as your Savior. You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not something that happened after you were born again, some, some special uh, experience after you were saved. It happens the moment you trust Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And in that moment, as we trust Christ as our Savior, we are eternally saved for all of eternity. But his Spirit dwells within us. And that gives us the opportunity to do greater works for him, experience greater intimacy with him, but also deepen our understanding of him. He's going to, he can disclose to us who he is as we spend time with him in his word. The fourth thing, an advantage of Jesus ascending, is that we can have a more powerful witness for Christ. John 15 says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is a spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he's going to testify about me. And you will also, because you've been with me from the very beginning. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the counselor, is going to be the witness who will aid, he says, your witness, our witness. And that brings us back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascended into heaven. It was crucial in the program, in the plan of God. And as he ascends, that's when the Holy Spirit, 10 days later, we'll see it when we get to Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God is sent from the Father and empowers his followers, takes up residence in their life to witness, to testify, to accomplish those greater works, to have that greater intimacy with God, to understand God in a deeper way. Now, seeing Jesus ascend into heaven must have filled these disciples maybe with a little bit of concern. I mean, they've been with him all those years, those three years. I mean, he was, he was their, well, I wouldn't say security blanket, but I mean, when they're on the storm-tossed sea and the waves are filling up the boat and, you know, they're thinking they're going to die, he just says, peace be still, and it's calm. That's kind of nice to have when you're on a rough sea. And they, they walked with him, and they were taught by him, and they loved him. And then to see him, the resurrected Lord, who'd come from death, from the tomb, to life. And then all of a sudden, as they're talking, he, he starts rising from the Mount of Olives, and, and he's gone. The clouds, what next? I'm sure it was a little unnerving, but God is gracious. Look at verse 10. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men. It doesn't say angels. It says two men. We don't know who they were. Moses, Elijah, something. We don't know. But two men appeared. They probably were angels. And it says they were dressed in white clothing, and they stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. You see that? He ascended bodily. You saw it with your own eyes. That was him. You, you, you might have saw as his feet rose and you're... The, the, the nail prints of his, uh, in his feet. You, you gazed at him 
That was him, but bodily, he ascended into heaven, into the clouds. He's going to come in exactly the same way. Now, the, these two men aren't saying, giving us the, a timetable, but it, they are saying the manner in which Jesus is going to return is the same as he went up. Bodily, he's going to return. In the clouds, he's going to return for all to see. Everyone who was there saw him. He's going to return, they said, in the same way. Bodily, in the clouds, and for all to see. Interesting, isn't it, that the last book of the Bible emphasizes that? Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And the second to the last verse, Revelation 22, 20, says, yes, I am coming quickly. Interesting, isn't it, that the first words that were spoken after Jesus ascended to heaven were words of the return of Jesus. And the last words in the Bible are about the return of Jesus. Think that's not on the heart and mind of God? Well, they heard it, they saw it, what are you going to do? Verse 12, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, and he now gives this list of the disciples, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, two of whom that we know, Jude and James, who wrote the epistle, those two epistles. Um, they obeyed Jesus. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And you will receive power on high. And when you receive that power, you're going to be my witnesses. So go. Now, there are so many life lessons I think that could be gained from this passage this morning. Tons of them. But let me just mention three in the time that we have remaining. I think there are three challenges for our life from this passage. Here's the first one. We are challenged to witness with his power. Witness with his power. You see, we cannot be effective witnesses for Jesus apart from his enabling power. It's like Jesus said, when you leave here, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do this on your own. Don't try this. Just wait because you can do nothing apart from me. And I'm going to empower you with my spirit, so don't even think of doing anything. Just wait. And when you do, and the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will be my witnesses with power. The good news is that since Acts chapter 2, as I've said before, every believer in Jesus Christ has received the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life in totality. 
The problem is not a lack of spiritual power that we have as Christians to live out this Christian existence as a testimony to the world. The problem is oftentimes ignorance. It's not that we're, there's no such thing as a defeated Christian. Can we just say that? No such thing as a defeated Christian. Jesus died and he rose again. He ascended and he sent the Spirit. That means every believer in Jesus Christ has been given the power to live and serve him. No, there's no such thing as a defeated Christian, but there sure are a lot of ignorant Christians. Satan is called the father of lies, is he not? And if he can keep us from understanding all that has been deposited within us in his strength and his power, if he can neutralize us in our effective witness for Jesus, if he can get us all concerned about the problems of our life, the suffering, the persecutions that might be coming, or the craziness that's going on in Washington, D.C., and all the stuff that's happening around the world, and we get enamored with that, well, our focus is going to be off him. We'll never know and live in light of who we are in Christ, and we'll never be an effective witness for him. But this passage challenges us to be a witness with power. Folks, that's what discipleship is all about. Can I say it this way? That's what a local church is all about. A, a local church is not some place to gather and sit soaking sour. You know, get together for an hour, high five, tell each other how great we are and how rotten the world is, and then go back into our little you know, hole and live the next six days and come back out again and high five each other for an hour. That's not what a local church is all about. That's not what Fellowship Bible Church is all about. Fellowship Bible Church is a church to prepare and deploy dependent disciples of Jesus Christ to help each other. And what does discipleship mean? It means that we help each other learn who we are in Christ, the resources that have been deposited in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and living that out. That's what a church should be. Discipleship is helping us grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be effective witnesses at home, in our schools, at work, in our community, in our world. That's what a local church is all about. Learning how to be effective witnesses with power that we already have resident within us and learning how to appropriate that. Well, that's enough about that, but man, that's, that's what a local church. You, if you ever move away or go to another church, find out what their mission statement is and what they're all about. Find out if that's what they are doing, helping each other live obediently for him by tapping in and appropriating the resources of the Spirit of God. Well, here's the second thing that I think the passage teaches us. Watch for his return. Watch for his return. What an amazing experience these disciples must have had as they watched Jesus ascend. And the, and the two people saying, he's going he's to come back just the same way. Don't you think that the next day, or maybe that afternoon, or the, that next week, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're walking down the road, and every once in a while they're glancing up. You know, John nudges James, says, have you ever seen that cloud formation before? <laughs> they had just heard... Two men saying he's going to return in exactly the same way, bodily in the clouds, and you'll see him. Um, now, 
it didn't happen that next week or the next month. In fact, 30 years later, um, the Apostle Peter writes in his final epistle uh, these words, but it was still on his mind. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers are going to come with their mocking, falling after their own lust, and they're going to say, hey, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day, and he's not slow about his promise, as some counsel on us, but he's patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is on a different timetable. And so we're called to be patient. Jesus' half-brother, James, when he wrote his epistle, he said it this way, therefore be patient until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late uh, rains. Will you too be patient? Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Years later, the disciples were still looking up. They were still watching. They were still waiting with vigilance and diligence. Of course, 2,000 years has gone by, hasn't it? Christ hasn't returned bodily like he said he was going to. The mockers are still mocking. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, it's coming. <laughs> Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 13. Do this, knowing the time. He's talking about maintaining the love in the church and growing as believers. And he said, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Folks, the night is almost gone. And the day is near. We're one day closer to his return. We're 2,000 years closer than when Jesus said those words. When that promise of his return. He's coming again with power and great glory. And as Revelation 1-7, the heavens are going to open and he's going to descend in the clouds and everyone will see it in his second coming to this earth. And it's closer today than it ever has been. And what are we to do with that? We're to watch for it. We're to watch for it. We're not just only to go about our routines and days. And do, do you ever catch yourself looking up at those clouds like I'm sure Peter, James, and John and the disciples did? Do you ever think that today could be the day that Jesus will return? Oh, there's a lot of eschatology and prophecy teaching um, to fill in the gaps of that statement. But just rest assured, He's coming again, and he calls us to be alert, vigilant, to watch. So this passage teaches us that we are to witness with his power. That's the, that's the outward call. We are to watch for his return. That's the upward look. And thirdly, he says that we are to wait with one-minded prayerfulness. One-minded prayerfulness. 
That's what the disciples did. They got together in Jerusalem and they waited. Now, can you imagine, and, and they did it, it says, with one mind in this, and they were devoted to prayer. Can you imagine what might have happened if they got together in that Jerusalem event and they started, and which they were prone to do, started arguing? You know, just a few weeks before, that's what they did. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Can we sit one at your right and one at your left in the kingdom? Argued, who, who's the greatest? Can you imagine what would have happened where we would be today if they went back to Jerusalem and argued? But they got together and with one-minded prayerfulness, they obeyed the Lord, they sat there, and they waited. They waited. They didn't rush out and try to win the world with the wonderful news. They obeyed Jesus, and they were one-minded and prayerful, they waited. Um, look, I, I, I know life is awfully busy, and um, things can take our attention. But this passage this morning, I think, is, is reor- it's a call to reorient our thinking. To reorient our thinking to realize, why are we here on earth and not yet in heaven? Because he calls us to be powerful witnesses for him. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have been radically transformed. The moment you put your trust in Christ, old things have passed away, all things have become new. We are new creations in Christ, and his very presence dwells within us. And that's just not so that we can get together and have a fun holy huddle one day, one day a week. It's so that we can penetrate this world with the glory of Christ. How are we doing in the powerful witnessing realm? Are we staying alert and watching for his soon return? And as Peter said, when we do, that changes our perspective of life. What manner of men or women are we to be? He says, when we have this hope, it's purifying. He's coming again. And are we doing life together in community with one-mindedness and devoted to prayer as we await his return? You know, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, if you don't know Jesus, you've got nothing to witness to. And you've got nothing to watch for. And you have no one to do it with. So let me invite you, if you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, let this day be that day. The good news is that he came to this earth not just to live a life of an example of what we should follow. He came to die for our sins, to pay the penalty that was separating us from the holy God for all of eternity. God so loved the world, he gave us his son. He paid for our sins in total. And he rose again on the third day. And all who put their trust, all who believe in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. In the moment of faith, that gift of everlasting life becomes yours. Have you put your trust in Christ and him alone? And then you can be on the receiving end in that moment of faith of the wonderful, wonderful thing that happened when Jesus ascended. The the descent of the Holy Spirit, 
takes up residence in our life, and we can be the people of God. As we'll see from the book of Acts, let's pray. Father, you're so kind to give us your word. Uh, these accounts that are historical, they're not fairy tales, it's not fiction. Uh, thank you for this Dr. Luke who carefully and skillfully um, researched and wrote these things down that for us even 2,000 years ago, or later, can read these things that took place those years ago. And Father, it can impact your life to know that we can receive that promise that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. That you're going to return and you call us to watch and to do it together as we wait with unity and one-mindedness. Oh God, I pray that we will take some spiritual inventory of our life as we leave here today. Are the things that we've just gone over, does it reflect my life? Speak to us, Father. Because when the sermon's done, the last song is sung, and we're walking out to our car, it's you and me, God. So continue the process of transformation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.